Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 18, Who Was Julia? What Was She? Julia Felix is famous for being the owner of the so-called Predia, or estate, of Julia Felix. Let's start with an overview for the property, which was pretty eye-catching, no matter who owned it. Size, for one thing. The enclosed area takes up two city blocks facing the Via della Bondanza, the main commercial artery in Pompeii, in the southeast corner hard by the amphitheater and next to a vineyard. No indication of who owned that bit of interesting real estate, but clearly more valuable as cropland than as urban development. Within Julia's double-wide, better than half the footprint was devoted to gardens rather than to buildings. Of buildings, there's a bath complex, a short-order restaurant, a long series of rooms laid out railroad coach style, some second-story apartments, and a residential house. In effect, it's an urban villa. Begin with the baths. The entrance opens onto the Via della Bondanza and demands attention. Columns, pediments, brick now, plaster-covered and probably painted back in the day, it stands out even on that busy boulevard. This is clearly a building that cares about its appearance. And so it should. It is, after all, competing with some big competition, larger public baths farther west near the Forum. This place, by comparison, has all the modern conveniences, but is, let us say, cahoozy. We call them baths, but that's to shortchange the Roman bath experience. Better to call it a spa, where a patron moves from one kind of health-improving experience to another. The street entrance opens onto a large waiting room with an open roof. From here, in the normal course of events, the patron was invited into an apoditarium, changing room, or rather disrobing room, then out the back to an open-air pool, natatio, eight and a half by four and a half meters, one and a half meters deep, good for a few short laps, and space to sunbathe. Perpendicular to the pool was a wide open space encased in high walls, perfect for a private palestra to practice quick sprints perhaps, or sword play, or boxing, wrestling, weightlifting, or whatever the jocks of the day found diverting. Easy to imagine that some patrons dispensed with the exercise. And so to the bath proper, where patrons endured a series of temperature extremes and moderation. A tepidarium, a warm room, a welcome once the tunic was off. Then to the caldarium, basically a steam room, perhaps with a hot tub, fueled by hidden furnaces. Alternatively, for the steam averse, the laconium, a dry high heat. The laconium on offer here was unusually tight, no more than two people at a time. Then, before one collapsed from the heat, it's off to the frigidarium for a cold water dip and a return to a happy medium body temperature-wise. Then to the garden to chat or to conspire. It's small beer compared to the other baths in Pompeii, the most notable being the Stabian baths, the Forum baths, and the Central baths, those places are worth the visitor's time, if only to see the decorations, marble work and stucco and painting, floor to ceiling. 
If your tastes ran to the erotic, not to say pornographic, you had only to head outside the city limits to the so-called suburban baths, where the pictures are distracting and give quite the education. But those baths were large-scale for a reason. Half the point of this place was exclusivity, small numbers of the population, and those, it was hoped, men of means, or perhaps women of means. Riffraff need not apply. So much for the baths. Back on the street, march one door down, and you enter a decidedly more tranquil space. Another atrium, rectangular, not square, its upper walls sporting frescoes, now in the Naples Archaeological Museum, of daily street life in Pompeii. Pass through this, and you come to a long colonnade, sixteen columns, fluted, Corinthian, holding up a roof that declines leftward. On your left, a green garden marked by a long rectangular water feature, a pool with three brick footbridges. On your right, a long row of rooms, some looking out on the garden, others accessible only from a narrow corridor in the back, a slave quarters or storage, or perhaps bedrooms for lesser family members. The most notable of these garden-facing rooms is filled with a triclinium, the U-shaped communal bench on which Romans half lay, elbows supporting selves, ate and drank from food on a central table. It's a stunning piece of work, all marble-facing, and, once upon a time, frescoes of food on the upper wall, and on the back wall, a steep, small set of steps down which water flowed into a trough behind the triclinium, then drained into a shallow basin that made up the space inside the U, from there into the garden and its larger water feature. It's a stunning piece of work, all marble-facing and, once upon a time, frescoes of food on the upper walls. On the back wall, a steep, small set of steps down which water flowed into a trough on the floor behind the triclinium, then drained into a shallow basin which made up the space inside the U, from there into the garden and its larger water feature. The Pompeian scholar L. Richardson wrote of this, It is impossible to imagine that people could have dined here with water playing all about them. Conceivably, it was for use in drinking parties, but it is more likely that it was simply another example of Pompeian playfulness a fountain room to be viewed especially from the garden and the arbor across the garden from it, framed in the architecture of a dining room but drenched in water. With all due respect to the good professor, his imagination on this occasion failed him. At no point in its journey does the water need to flow through the thin air and strike a splash-inducing surface. Turn down the tap at the top of the mini-staircase, and water can be made to cling to the steps on its downward journey. Presumably it would have been lovely just to look at, as he says. You can buy home versions of it to this day. But, back then, on a hot July day, we are talking central Italy here, the prospect of dining in the shade and in the presence of gently flowing water in the room could only have been welcome. Continue along the colonnade and we reach the house. Richardson again. While rather small, the house is too fine to be the apartment of a caretaker and has all the appointments of a private house, 
including his own kitchen and dining rooms, one of which was decorated with a series of Apollo and the Muses identified by inscriptions in the Greek alphabet. One thinks of a club secretary or some similar functionary. Why not Julia Felix herself? No reason for her not to be in residence in this relaxing property, especially as the summer was winding down. For a single person, the house would be more than comfortable. Which gets us back to the original question. Who was Julia? What was she? Common short form, that is, a quick superficial Google search, has it that she was a prominent businesswoman, a canny entrepreneur, that she worked her way up from poverty, even slavery, to prosperity, that she took this place in disrepair, and then, says one enthusiast, she had the building partially converted into tenement, leaving the other part for public use, following a major earthquake in AD 62. Renting out her villa helped her earn extra income and established herself as a property owner, a businesswoman, and public figure in Pompeii. Is this true? It might be. But there's an unsubstantiated supposition here. Where is there evidence of public use? or indeed of her being a public figure, for that matter. The imagination wanders a little recklessly. With respect, and at the risk of popping happy bubbles, much of what is written about Julia Felix is more than we know. Indeed, it is more than we can know. All we really have to work on regarding her is a single graffito on the side of the property facing the Via del Abondanza. On it is written... Among the properties of Julia Felix, a daughter of Spurius, there are, for rent, a bath of Venus fit for the gentry, shops with mezzanine apartments, second-floor apartments, available August 5th for a five-year lease. Seven letters follow, S-Q-D-L-E-N-C, and they are subject to debate. One suggestion is... Si quis desirabit locitricem eo nomine convenito, which very loosely translates as interested parties inquire of the landlady by name. Parsing the graffito as a whole, we may say that she is the bastard daughter of Spurius, who himself was probably either a freedman of the Julii family, I think Julius Caesar's crew, or himself a son of a freed slave of the Julie family. They turn up in that part of Italy. That's it, though. That's all we've really got. Still, we can tease a bit more out of this one data point. For starters, Julia knew or believed that the late Spurius was well enough known in Pompeii for her to mention him in the advert. Her name alone, unlike that of a few other Pompeian women, we'll get to them, seems not to have carried enough weight. From there, we edge into educated speculation. The suggestion has been made that Spurius and or Julia came to the city from Rome looking for a change. Pompeii, despite the earthquake, still had commercial attractions stemming from its location on the Sarno River and the sea. Goods from the inland farms came downriver to this natural trading point. A bad earthquake is a bad earthquake, but hardly unknown in Italy. 
If you were willing to put some money and effort into the operation, you could do well. Buy when there's blood in the streets. If Spurius was a former slave, he would likely have been in the second half of life with a possible send-off or savings or legacy, which he hoped, like Trimalchio of the Satyricon, to turn into a real fortune. There is no other record of his name. This gap could be happenstance or not. If a freed slave, he would not have been eligible for public office, and so no campaign posters. If eligible, he may have had no taste for it. What of Julia? Did she start life when her father was at the very bottom, assuming he had been a slave, or after he was manumitted and financially comfortable? Either situation is possible. Either situation would likely shape a different personality. Back to the property and a few more questions. When, in the 17 years between AD 63 and AD 70, did it change hands, and who sold it? Italian scholar Matteo della Corte suggests that the bath had once been the venue of the Uenes Venerii Pompeii, that is, well-born young man's athletic club. And Professor Richardson saw it as a private gentleman's club. This makes sense, given the layout. It also suggests a possible post-earthquake narrative. Imagine the property as owned in common by such a club. The earthquake does a number on the bathhouse and more besides. The club members gather to discuss next steps. The better off are all for rebuilding. The less well-off are more concerned with their own damaged properties. Swinging the cost of fixing their own property as well as pitching in for this place, that's a bit much. That bath, the chief attraction for this club, would be an expensive fix. Have you talked to the contractors? Really, the estimates were outrageous. And who knew how long it would take? The backlog in this part of the world was months, even years. Frankly, some members could use some ready cash right now. Let's just sell up and split the proceeds. And perhaps they tried to make it work for a few years, with or without benefit of the bathhouse, until finally the holdouts gave in. An out-of-towner, say Asperius, cash in hand, was just the sort of person they needed. Something along those lines in any event. So, Spurious, daughter at his side, puts cash in the barrel and becomes the new owner. Alternatively, Spurious and Julia come to Pompeii, open to opportunity, but he keeps his investment powder dry for just the right situation. At some unknown date, he dies, and Julia, no longer under the authority of her father, or husband it would seem, inherits his stake and is able to buy and sell land and businesses on her own bat, in which case she bought the place. What exactly has he, or she, bought? Something of a white elephant, if you think about it. The garden was, and is, beguiling, but perhaps promised more than it could deliver. Of the building, the commercial prospects are limited, it's only two shop spaces, one fitted out for a thermopolium or fast-food joint, and that bath. 
According to archaeologists, the post-earthquake repairs on the bathhouse are less than optimal. Someone hired mediocre workmen and got mediocre work. Who? The previous owners? Spurious? Julia? The mind wanders again. When did Spurious die? How old was Julia in 1879? Teenager? Mature adult? Clever? Foolish? Strong-minded? Or a gump? What other assets, if any, did she have? Was she living on the property? If the last line on the advertisement is interpreted as stated, one would have to assume yes. Were there any other listed properties already let out? Or were the start dates there for some other reason? Had she been acting as general manager, and if so, for how long? Were the places on offer a job lot, or was she open to individual entrepreneurs? Was she getting any nibbles? Granted, signs in Pompeii tended to outlive their sell-by dates, but even so, the clock in Pompeii was ticking pretty close to midnight. People like an uplifting story of the underdog making good, and, as noted above, Julia Felix invariably gets that treatment. To put a disquieting, even brutal, spin on the matter, nine out of ten businesses go bust within the year. Even Tremalchio failed a few times before he hit it big. Was that for-rent sign a sign of her business savvy, or a desperate attempt to get out of money troubles? Real estate's a tricky business, and you can lose your tunic in it. At the high end, you can be living in the lap of luxury, but still be in debt up to your eyeballs. Many questions, no definitive answers, just speculation and educated and, alas, at times uneducated, guesses, some happier than others. Whether you prefer to see her as a strong Roman woman and canny proto-business tycoon, or a flustered orphan in over her head, or something in between, is a matter of taste. More data could still turn up in the as-yet-undug areas within and outside the city walls, a campaign poster, a tomb with some life accomplishments listed, until then, and even after then, we've got a little bit of fodder for writers of historical fiction. Nothing wrong with that. Indeed, within reason, there can be quite a lot right with that. So consider the possibilities. Consider this as a writer's group challenge. Write a short story. Hell, write a novel. On the life and times of Julia Felix, as tragedy, as comedy, as inspiration as moral quandary, as gun-to-the-head bummer of a read. Model Julia as Little Dorrit, Becky Sharp, Madeline Bassett, or Hetty Green. If Hetty Green is unfamiliar to you, look her up. Alarming woman, to say the least. Here's hoping Julia's life lived up to her name, that she got out of town alive and with enough of a stake to start over. In the meantime, next week, for a bit of turnabout being fair play, some discussion of Aleus Negidius Maius, who started out at the top and who seems to have stayed there to the end. He, like Julia, had real estate to rent, but with some notable differences from Julia. As usual, if you're feeling generous and flush, a few coins in the donation box would be more than welcome. I like doing this, but time is money, except when it isn't. So if this has been worth your time, well, you know the rest of the equation. 
And also, as usual, thank you for listening.